Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Decoding AQ. Today, I've got John Hagel joining me. He's a management consultant, but has had a 40-year career at the intersection of business strategy and technology. Over a decade at Deloitte, almost two decades at McKinsey, and a host of experiences in between, a published author. And as I learned last week, uh, a new book is on the way with a working title of uh, The Journey Beyond Fear. So welcome, John. Thank you. It's great to be here. So give me a little bit of a, a flavor for what got you started? You know, what, what was the first rung? I've looked at some of your, your background, some time at Atari as well, embarrassing. <laughs> what, what got you into your first career? Tell me about that story. Wow. <laughs> My first career was completely by accident, actually. I was, um, it's a long story, but I, I was interviewed, did a joint program, law school and business school. I knew I didn't want to go into law as a career, but I decided for my last summer of the program, I would work for a law firm just to say I'd done it. And uh, the more I interviewed with law firms, the more depressed I became. And I saw in the recruiting office, there was this uh, notice that this company called Boston Consulting Group uh, was interviewing. I didn't know who they were, except that they were not a law firm. So I signed up. And the first thing I said to the partner in the first interview was, if you don't give me an offer for the summer, I'm going to have to go work for a law firm and I'm going to commit suicide. And he took great pity on me and <laughs> gave me an offer. <laughs> it, it's funny, isn't it, that the, the memory of events and what gets us into, you know, circumstances, you know, and uh, Boston Consulting, I had visions there of, I don't know if you ever watched the series called Suits. Did you no, see that? No, I've not seen that. There's, there's this moment where the chap, he has a particular gift in memory and he, whatever he reads, he remembers. And he was a little bit of a delinquent trying to make ends meet. And he would take people's exams for them. <clears throat> and he passed the bar for somebody else, all this sort of thing. And he ends up in this interview for a legal firm and uh, wangles his way in and of course you know nine seasons later uh, an incredible journey but it's just often often those little serendipitous moments in our lives that send us off on a trajectory and so how from that you know couple of years at BCG and moving on what were the sort of key moments that kind of shaped your career and shaped your thinking other than maybe a little bit of accidents along the way <laughs> No, well, I think the um, the big event was I worked for BCG for two years in Boston, and um, I came up with this idea for a new company in the computer space. Um, and I had, had been to uh, San Francisco a few years before for as part of a summer, and I really loved the area. so. I decided if I was going to do a computer startup, why not move to Silicon Valley? Because that's where all the computer startups were. And uh, I've never looked back. That was 40 years ago. And what drew me, and it was interesting because, again, 
I had this idea for a computer company. I had never even used a computer, much less studied the technology. So I had no technology background. I was liberal arts. And fortunately, I managed to find people who had the technology uh, expertise to join me. Um, but it was so energizing to see the digital technology and the exponential rate of improvement in the technology that it's kept me in Silicon Valley for, for all this time. And um, I think that was certainly a, a major turning point in, in my life. And, and then um, it, it was a journey. I did a couple of startups, uh, but I also worked for large consulting firms. And um, to me, the, what ultimately really uh, excited me and engaged me was the opportunity to combine consulting with research. Um, you know, I find that just doing research, you can become very abstract and theoretical and conceptual. Um, and the, the opportunity and need to apply it in a consulting context makes it much more actionable. But then the opportunity to step back from the consulting assignments and see the broader patterns that are emerging and the unmet needs and new opportunities is can drive the research. And so I think the combination of the two, research and consulting, is to me the sweet spot that has, uh, has really driven me. The, you talk about the sweet spot of a couple of things there that I want to touch on. One was the intention to be in an environment where you felt energy, the opportunity, all of those things, taking a, um, a specific choice to be in Silicon Valley, therefore would have presented different opportunities. And then a structure in terms of this dance and poetry between real life consulting and research and that they play well together um, is quite an interesting one. In terms of that 40 years experience of the change that's happened in that geography. What has been, do you think, the, the thread that's allowed that to be at the forefront of so much innovation that we've seen around the world? What, what would you say is the, some of the real causes of that? Uh, there, there are many, but the one that I think often gets overlooked or um, under, underplayed is the I, I believe that the Silicon Valley has been driven by something that I call an opportunity-based narrative, which was um, the notion that there's new generations of digital technology that have the potential to change the world for the better, but it's only the potential. It's not gonna happen automatically. You have to come. Are you willing to come to Silicon Valley and help change the world. And I think for decades, it's drawn people, and I, I comment many people don't realize, but if you look at Silicon Valley at the successful entrepreneurs, the majority of the successful entrepreneurs were not born in the United States, much less in Silicon Valley. They came from all over the world, drawn by this opportunity-based narrative to change the world. And that's what drove them and keeps driving them. And I think, you know, we go through cycles in, in Silicon Valley where there are the booms and the busts. And during the booms, the bubbles, if you will, 
it tends to draw in a lot of people who are just coming to make a quick buck. They want to make their fortune and go public and, and retire. When the bust occurs, those people leave. And the people who remain are those who want to change the world. They're not here to make a billion dollars. I mean, it's fine if they make some money along the way. What is, what is driving them and inspiring them is the opportunity to change the world. And they're here continually, regardless. So that I think that's uh, what's helped to keep the Valley um, vibrant and, and productive over many decades. And it's, you know, this collision of minds, of creative minds with opportunity and a realizing of, of technology. I remember visiting uh, Edison in Florida, his, you know, home and where there was Firestone. There was lots of people that were pivotal in creating and innovating that were together. And, you know, sitting on the porch, chewing the cud, you know, doing things that allowed each other to um, interact, to dance in those things. The, the other thing that sprung to mind was, I don't know if you've seen the documentary called General Magic. Oh, yes. No. Yeah. And no. for, for me, so much of it completely passed me by as an unknown story of some of the... <laughs> you know, the failures and huge failures, but were not really widely known. Maybe they were in the valley. I don't know. Um, but that then when you look at all of those people that were part of that story and that narrative and what they've gone on to create, you know, whether that's, you know, um, in government positions, whether that's Twitter, whether it's other startups, all various things, they seem to have proliferated throughout so many things that are successful now from the iPhones and Apple and various things that started almost in that kind of period that General Magic covers as a documentary. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right. People, when they see Silicon Valley, they, they focus on all the huge success stories, the, um, uh, the great public companies that have emerged. But the truth is the vast majority of the startups in Silicon Valley failed. And it's, again, a, 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 both an opportunity-driven mindset of the entrepreneurs who say, okay, I failed, what's next? What's, how can I change and, and get more impact? And uh, it's this very much the learning mindset of failure is an opportunity to learn and I'll be better in the next, next round. I know a lot of venture capitalists here in Silicon Valley who will refuse to fund an entrepreneur unless that entrepreneur has failed at least once. Mm. Because their belief is those are the people who can address challenges and overcome them versus just, you know. Fresh face. The, yeah, the, yeah, the naivety. <laughs> I mean, anyone who wants to go at it a second go or a third go, you know, I commend them because often it's the naivety that, you know, if you knew what you were getting yourself in for, <laughs> you, <laughs> most rational people wouldn't do it, you know, right, in, right. in this world. In terms of the, your vision and experience that you've seen looking back, if we now look forward and we look forward and take that same kind of period, let's say 40 years um, into the future, and what kinds of opportunities, what kinds of traits, you know, 
is almost imaginable because we're on such this pace uh, of accelerated change through all of these different exponential technologies. But what do you think people could do to prepare for the future that perhaps you see? Um, and tell us a little bit about that. Ah, boy, well, a lot of things. It's actually the focus of my new book is uh, how do you prepare? And I think the um, one of the key elements, and, and again, part of it is, has been inspired by my experience in Silicon Valley, is to cultivate what I call the passion of the explorer. And it's a very specific form of passion. Everybody talks about passion. They have different meanings. This is based on research, looking at environments where there's sustained extreme performance improvement. And what are the attributes of the participants in those environments? And I came up with passion of the explorer as having three elements, which are, I think, really critical and, and will help to drive success in the future. One is you have a long-term commitment to a particular domain. There's something that really excites you and you're committed to, and you're not just committed to being in the domain, you're committed to having an increasing impact in that domain. And then the second attribute is what I call a questing disposition, which is people who have this passion are excited about a new challenge. You know, many of us get afraid and wanna hide and avoid the challenge. No, these people are constantly seeking out the new challenges because they view it as an opportunity to have more impact. And then the third element is what I call a connecting disposition, which is their first reaction when confronted with a new challenge is who else can I connect with who can help me get to a better answer faster and have even more impact. So they are extremely well connected, constantly seeking help. And that's what really drives the success of the passion. People have the passion to explore. They're really extremely powerful learners. They're learning constantly. And in a world of rapid change, if we're not learning and excited about learning, I think that's, you know, we talk today about, everybody's talking about, we're in a world of lifelong learning. We all have to learn and learn faster and learn continuously. Nobody talks about, okay, What's the motivation to do that? Why would you be a lifelong learner? The unstated answer uh, that if I probe deeply enough, I'll get it, pull it out is, well, you, you're gonna be a lifelong learner driven by fear because if you don't learn, you're gonna lose your job. So get to it, learn. And while fear can be a motivator for learning, it's not a very effective motivator. And my view is based on the research, again, the people who have this passion of the explorer are driven to be lifelong learners. They're excited about it. They want to do it. That's, they're the ones who are gonna learn fastest and, and on a continuing basis. So again, if you don't have passion of the explorer about what you're doing in your work, my advice is step back and find something where you can cultivate that passion because otherwise you're not going to learn quickly enough to be successful 40 years from now. It's an interesting concept. And um, I think I mentioned last week when we met about my mentor and coach, Dan Sullivan, and we're in a particular program that's called Free Zone Frontiers. And it's about pioneering new ground. So it's entrepreneurs that have generated a certain level of 
success or whatever it may be, but it's now about how do you transform an industry? And therefore you're doing it by pioneering new ground. But you mentioned about the network effect of who do you know? Not necessarily the how, because the, the how might not even be there yet. You know, the puck's <laughs> on its way. And we have to collaborate and collide with those opportunities. And it's quite an interesting way of thought of that pioneer or the explorer, as you talk about, that are excited by that. What happens if you're not? Is it a case that everyone can be and it's about finding your area in your domain um, and it's contextual to you? Or is it just up to the few, the exponential leaders that do this, that will carve the future and the rest are left <laughs> behind? What's your vision uh, for how this plays out? I get a lot of pushback from people who say, well, come on, some of us are capable of being passionate and but most of us just want to be told what to do and have the safety of an income and security. And I, I really resist that notion. I think within all of us, there is a deep desire to draw out and cultivate that passion. And the challenge is some of us, you know, we all know the stories of children five years old who realize at five years old, they wanna be an astronaut or a concert pianist and they devote their lives to the uh, passion about, the, about that thing. But most of us, I think, don't find our passion that quickly. And most of us, I would say, unfortunately, give up trying to find that passion because we are in environments that discourage that. The schools and the work, work environments, deeply suspect of passion. You know, if you're passionate, you take risks, you deviate from the script, why would you want somebody to do that? You want somebody who just follows instructions and does the job reliably. And so I think that it's, it's up to us to, to really re-energize around if we don't have that passion of the explorer to commit to find it, to experience different contexts and situations until we find something that really excites us. And I, I'll just, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I'll give you one quick example that gives me more uh, courage in terms of this belief that everybody can do it. Um, there, there's the famous story of Toyota in their, in their factories, automobile factories, who redefined the work of the workers and said, you know, yes, you have some routine tasks, but your real job, your real job is to identify problems and not just identify the problem, solve the problem as soon as it comes up. And if you can't solve it, we'll, we'll give you a, a team that can help solve it and you'll be a hero. Passion levels went way up because now workers were really making a difference. They saw that they were seeing things nobody else had seen and solving them. And so I, I think if we create the right environments, we can draw out that passion. It's interesting. It links to kind of the five whys, doesn't it, of, of Toyota, that when you see a problem, you ask why and you keep asking it <laughs> until you get to the root, something that we bash out of children. You know, we get yeah. frustrated <laughs> when they go through the, yeah. the why phase. But no, we should, you know, we should harness that. That's exactly. the embodiment of, of discovery. I, I love the belief, because I share it, that everyone has that in them. Some of them, like you say, at five years old, they see it and they know the shape. And therefore, decisions become easy. Because that's what a goal does, is that it makes decisions easy. And we can cut off things. To decide is to cut off 
and yeah. to remove. And so I, I, I think, you know, I, I've spoken to a lot of artists and I often use the story about um, sculpture and what they're doing is not sculpting the object. They're just taking away all the other things that aren't the object that was already inside. You know? yeah, exactly. And exactly. For, for many, the passion is about trying things on, put the clothes on, you know, try that experience and see how it fits. How does it feel? Yes. So that explorer ties super well with that in terms of, okay, go and explore, go and do things yeah. for the first time, go and do them for the second time, see what that's like to whether you want to do it again and having the grit when it's hard <laughs> to go yeah. through. And we also need the path. You know, we need to see a vision even in our minds of what might be possible and to be able to keep, keep going uh, through it. In terms of you must have experienced so many different people and companies that you've worked with along the, along the years. And I remember you talking about enhancing this ability to anticipate. And in sports, um, my brother's a, a uh, sport and exercise science uh, coach for Olympic athletes in Canada. Mm. And whilst a lot of the work you know, before was about technique and all these sorts of things of diet, nutrition, etc. The opportunity of court sense to know where things are, the moving parts to anticipate the flow. How does that work in business? And is there stories and examples of where you've seen leaders or individuals work to enhance that ability to anticipate um, how do they do that? What can we learn from that and give us some insights? Because it's something I'm desperately keen to sharpen my saw, <laughs> the ability to anticipate what's coming. Now, again, it's something I've become very uh, a strong proponent of. I, again, a lot of it's from my experience in Silicon Valley. I've had the opportunity to work with some of the most successful tech companies in Silicon Valley. And they have a very different approach to strategy than most traditional institutions. And I've come to call it zoom out, zoom in. But the focus here is two horizons, time horizons. One is 10 to 20 years. And the focus there is what is our market or industry going to look like 10 to 20 years from now? And then what are the implications for the kind of business we could create that would create huge value 10 to 20 years from now? That's the zoom out. Zoom in, six to 12 months. And on that horizon, the questions are, what are the two or three initiatives, no more, two or three, that we could pursue in the next six to 12 months that would have the greatest impact in accelerating our movement towards that longer term destination? And do we have a critical mass of resources against those two or three initiatives? And then how would we measure success? But I think it's, a, it's driven very much by a learning mindset of yes, the future, but there are some things that are reasonably predictable. Let's focus on those and let's see what, if we can identify a really big opportunity. And then let's focus on learning through action today. What can we do now that would give us more insight both about the opportunity and about how to get there? And I think that's the challenge. I, I'll just give a quick example. Most of the companies who pursue this have not talked publicly about their zoom out view or zoom in and 
but one company has been written about. It was a small startup in Redmond, Washington back in the mid-1970s, a company called Microsoft. Um, Bill Gates pursued a zoom out, zoom in approach. And his zoom out at the time he started the company could be summarized in two sentences. First, computing is moving from centralized mainframes to the desktop. Second, if you wanna be a leader in the computer industry, you have to be a leader on the desktop. And uh, you know, we need to force ourselves to go back in time. At the, at the time, that was a hugely controversial view of the future of computing. But he was committed to it and it drove his choices in the short term. And I think was key to his success in, in becoming a leader in the computer industry. But it was that need and desire to look ahead and, and focus, frame a, a destination that could focus all your short-term actions. And I guess the bigger we see the future, the better present we have, you know, in terms of whether it happened because he envisioned it or it was going to happen anyway and he was just able to be part of that flow, that's the, you know, conundrum of, of pieces, isn't it? Well, one of the other things I'm interested in to, to go a little bit deeper with you, John, is this um, experience you've had and you talk about this intersection between business strategy and technology. And we've just talked about this converge and diverge, you know, of timeframes or thinking. Uh, in terms of your perhaps more recent thoughts of where does psychology play in the strategic uh, boardroom and strategic thinking and what shifts and changes have you seen from potentially what might have been seen as the fluffy stuff um, to strategy and business and economics and then all that psychology thing that's for the you know when you <laughs> lie back in the chair and something's gone wrong I'm interested in your views of what has shifted what have you seen that's shifted if it has and what are you anticipating psychology's role in the future now, well, it's definitely front and center in my current work. Uh, it's, in fact, the focus of this new book is, um, I'd say that the catalyst is that throughout my career, I was trained as a business strategist. I came to believe strategy was everything. Over time, I've come to believe, no, psychology is actually much more important. That if we don't understand the emotions that are shaping and our choices and actions, the best strategy is just going to sit on a shelf somewhere. And then the other catalyst, and this was well before the current pandemic uh, situation, uh, I traveled around the world as part of my work and I was struck by the degree to which the dominant emotion that I was encountering everywhere, uh, highest levels, lowest levels in communities was fear. And I think while it's understandable, I think there are, there are changes in the world that are, are driving fear or drawing out fear. I think it's potentially dysfunctional. And the challenge for all of us is how do we move from fear to hope and excitement and motivate ourselves to move forward in spite of the fear. And that I think is really the, um, and I'll just mention I, I, everything that I, I do is connected. This notion of zoom out, zoom in that I talked about, it can be framed in very conventional, traditional strategy terms. But at, at another level, if you think about it from a psychology view, on the one side, zoom out is framing a really inspiring long-term opportunity. 
something that could get people to look ahead and really get excited about something that's out in the future. And then the zoom in focuses on action today that can yield impact and help overcome the skepticism that we would naturally have. You know, wow, that's a really interesting opportunity, but it's never going to happen. No, we're actually making an impact now and builds the excitement even further to really go for that opportunity. So I think it, it can be a powerful way to shift beyond fear. It's interesting. I, uh, I do remember reading Feel, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I think is it uh, <laughs> Suzanne Jeffers um, many years ago. And there's a particular page in it that listed out uh, a shift in mindset and thinking from a fear mindset. And it had this list of things of things like, um, I'm excited by getting old, you know, just these <laughs> almost oxymoron thinking uh, that's counterintuitive that most people are fearful of these things. How could we flip it? And I wrote it on my whiteboard in my office at the time, and I had it up for probably a year of these types of statements. And it was really impactful for both me and my team around me when decisions are you overthink, you know, it's difficult. And really the challenge was not, not anything other than just making a decision. <laughs> no? And a lot of innovation is the fear of, is it good enough? Is it right? Is it the right time? Just get it out there. You know, yeah. if you're not embarrassed by it, you've launched too late. Um, you know, and that's a really difficult mindset to get into. And often, what I observed in our innovation workshops and things before our focus on adaptability was, was this almost immune system response of, of humans. And maybe there's more psychological terms for this, but these, these barriers that um, the mass don't embrace change. Whilst we started off our conversation of these explorers that yearn for it, that seek it, that find it in their domain. Yeah. Um, but for many of us, we want certainty. We don't want things to change. Um, and I, I'm interested in a, in a story of where perhaps either you in your uh, work saw an organization create a vision and then act on it. So whilst we see these big examples of Microsoft and, and talking about it, give me something that perhaps gives us some traits about where psychology played a role in that, what challenge they perhaps faced when they're doing it. Because many of our listeners, many people, they'll be leading teams. They'll be needing to shift their business either through their own endeavors intent of an ambition or because an external fact has happened like Corona and COVID right now. And many of them are in a fear state. You know, they want to create opportunity and thriving and innovate, but their teams are fearful and it's harder to perhaps read some of their emotions and deal with it. What lessons have you seen or examples that they might be able to gain some hope, gain some tips from in how they might be able to start that journey or continue momentum along those journeys? Wow, yes. Um, well, I certainly definitely agree. One of the key messages in my work with, with organizations of all types, large organizations, is 
never ever underestimate the power of the immune system and the antibodies that in my experience exist in every organization, every large organization. And um, they're driven by fear. Again, they're not the people who are part of this immune system are not evil people. They're afraid and their response to fear is hold on to what we have. That's the way we're gonna to continue to be successful. Um, what does I it think look in, like? What, what things do organizations say? What do people and teams say that um, can be seen of that immune system sort of sentence or theory? What's the reality? So you mentioned they hold on to things, but what does that yeah. look like? What does it sound like? Well, it takes many different forms. I think a lot of it has to do with resistance to new innovation initiatives, changes. I mean, it's, you know, it's a distraction. It's taking money from the core where we could really continue to be successful. Um, it's, you know, just focusing on all the things that could go wrong. You know, I, I often talk, it, reflect that when, when I have conversations about risk management in large companies, the focus is all about the risk of new initiatives. What are the risks attached with that? Nobody ever asks, what's the risk of not doing anything? What's the risk of just continuing on the path we're on? That's not even on the table. It's all about the risk of doing something. And so I think that's a, a good example of the immune system at work. It's, um, yeah. And it, it hurts when, when you come up against the immune system as a consultant. I guess you must have experienced it many times. You've got something that you believe a team, a board, a leader should respond to, and they're not. Um, how do you <clears throat> overcome that? How do you, how do you circumvent? How do you beat the immune system? And in that question, I'd like you to uh, give me an example of a big frustration you had. So when you found something, either through research or through something, and you were taking it into someone and you said, this is what you need to be looking at. This is what's there. And the immune system hit you, yeah. um, which was one of the biggest ones that you wish you could go back and get them to embrace it, get them to listen, get, get through that immune system. Uh, bring that to life for me. I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear. Oh, boy. Um, so I think I'll just say that in my experience, the best way to uh, address the, the challenge of the immune system is, uh, first of all, don't try to convince the entire leadership of the organization of the need for change. Find one person, ideally the leader, the CEO, or somebody who reports to the CEO who has both the courage and conviction to drive change. And then work with that person to identify what I call an edge to the existing organization, something that today is pretty modest in terms of the activity that's going on. But if you understand the long-term forces that are reshaping the market or environment, that edge has the potential to scale to the point where it will become the new core of your organization. And drive the change, focus on driving the change on, in that edge and scale the edge and over time, pull more and more of the people and resources from the core out to the edge um, as they start to see the impact that's being achieved and, and the growth that's occurring. 
but don't go in and try to change everything in the core because again, that pulls out the immune system. The immune system is pretty um, tolerant, particularly if you can scale the edge without massive investment in the early stages. I mean, a lot of companies I think make the mistake of saying this is the future, we're gonna pour a ton of money into it and, and that the immune system rapidly mobilizes to pull that money back. And one of my principles in scaling the edge is starve the edge. And it's counterintuitive, but it's the notion, particularly in the early days, what's the minimum amount of resource that edge can be provided with that will help it to scale. And it forces the edge to leverage, to connect with other resources beyond outside the organization so they can scale more rapidly. But it also reduces the resistance from the immune system because you're not pulling a lot of money in the early days out to scale the edge. Uh, I love that because my brain works in, in a visual fashion. And I, in listening to you there, it's a case of if I'm hearing it correctly, rather than going up against the immune system for a fight, try and sneak around it. Try and find a little crevice and do it without it noticing. You know, the game that you can win is nobody knowing you're playing it. And well, that I think it. is really interesting for many organizations who are thinking, ah, oh, we've got to do this. You know, the stakes are really high and up comes immune system to sneak it in. And then it catches them by surprise that here it is. This is now becomes from edge to core. And it's that continual cycle, edge to core, edge to core, edge to core. And now what's happening is the timeline of that, that it might've been 20 years or 30 years of an edge and then a core existence for something now maybe as a much shorter lifespan uh, of this that, edge to core cycle. That's what makes it much more feasible today is you can scale edges at a pace that would have been unimaginable a decade or two ago. And I think the, the notion I'm very much inspired by uh, in strategy, the book, The Art of War. Yep. And uh, one of the key messages in The Art of War is if you have to engage the enemy in battle, you've already lost the war. And I think it, it fights that natural tendency we have when we get the conviction we need to change. It's let's confront the enemies as yeah. quickly as we can, get, get them out of the way and move on. Yeah. Resist that because never underestimate the power of the immune system. Yeah. And Do, find ways to progress without confronting the enemy. What was the film? It was Keanu Reeves and I think it was Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. Uh, Devil's Advocate. Don't know if you ever ah, saw that. There yeah. were some really interesting concepts and lines in there where the devil uh, character is so unassuming and they never see him coming. And it's that <laughs> notion, isn't it? That, yeah. you know, don't let them see you, see you coming. And don't give them chance to go to war. And yeah. this is this is really uh, shifting my thinking about some of the challenges I've got in my uh, business at the moment in our, our phase. And we're kind of playing in a few sectors of health technology, bits of HR technology, bits of ed tech. And I'm interested to, you know, extract some of your genius about the edges uh, in this, because I have my vision, you know, and trying to anticipate perhaps what the future of technology of education might be, for example, yeah. where we've seen lots of uh, innovation, say in uh, finance, in fintech, 
now coming later is health tech, you know, then coming ed tech and, and these types of things. What's your, you know, areas and views about the edges around education technology? Because we've seen a massive transition in so many because of COVID. And right. the easy answer is, oh, everything's gone remote and gone digital, but I want more yeah. than that. You know, that's just, <laughs> that's the surface 101 part, but yeah. this sort of movement to decentralization, to, you know, where does different technologies play? What's your view of edges around ed tech? Wow, a whole, whole other conversation. I, I think there are many, uh, elements of it. Again, I've worked with some universities around the notion of what's an edge for the university to drive change. Um, and in that context specifically, I would say that in my view, one of the most interesting edges is the alumni of the university, right? Because once you graduate, get your degree, the sense is, well, the alumni are there to give you money, to give you donations versus no, this is just the beginning of their learning journey. How can we develop programs that will help them to continue to learn beyond where, where they've been? And by focusing on that, you're not going in and challenging the departments and the professors who are all working sneaking on- Sneaking around the edge. <laughs> you're sneaking around the edge, an unmet need yeah. that is growing in time and where you can add more and more value and scale that the point where it ultimately becomes what a massive massive body of potential there because you're talking about you know such a period of time and generations of alumni that could be uh, at the moment uh, like you say they're uh, the odd donors the odd you know let's have a reunion versus what are their needs how could we interact and leverage that crowd um yeah. fascinating that's that's very very interesting in terms of organizations that are navigating well right now what what are the traits that exist in them so you you, you talked about fear being a driver of change and one of the most dominant emotions you experienced throughout your career um, the ones that do well with that, what happens? What are the sort of characteristics? What are some of the skills and, and environment that an organization or team has to either leverage fear, to sneak around it, um, to yeah. overcome it? You know, what's the sort of environmental factors that exist inside team and organizations to, to harness that emotion? Uh, again, complicated, a lot of different elements that come together as I mentioned earlier, the zoom out, zoom in, I yep. think can be very powerful kind of broader context. I think then the, one of the opportunities that I see is to redesign the work environments in fundamental ways to help motivate learning and overcome fear. One of the key elements that I've come to believe is that over time, we, we're gonna redefine work in ways where most of the work is gonna be done by groups of people on the front line who are working tightly together. They're not just sitting in cubicles doing their assigned tasks. They're working with each other to address some kind of problem or opportunity that hasn't been addressed before. 
and they're driven to learn on how to have more impact in that area. And so I think part of it is culture. I, I did a whole research report on what I call business practice redesign, but it's the notion of what are the practices in small work groups that can help to accelerate learning and performance improvement and help them to overcome that fear and move forward in a very productive way. I've got a, a question and thought about that. It was in reading um, Black Box Thinking, and it was talking about the, the difference of, um, say, these specialist silos that exist to create change. You know, if we, you mentioned about small teams, five or six people is where I think the, the known sweet spot is to create radical change. You don't need massive organizations. Uh, you need this dedicated team of people that are working to, to a challenge. One of the, the challenges is the feedback loop of that. So in healthcare, you can have one breakthrough happen or one huge mistake happen in a town or city in one country. And the system doesn't improve from that, you know, and it will be repeated time and time again of whether that's a malpractice that happened or a breakthrough. And it, it doesn't generally proliferate throughout the industry. The airline industry was shown as something a little bit different to that rather than looking at that malpractice as, oh, it's got to be hidden. We, you know, don't want to, you know, change it. It changes the system. So for where there was a, a crash of the body and it wasn't the pilot. It's the fact that the blooming button was, you know, next to the wrong button. So all aircraft change in the scenario where you, if I understood it correctly, have almost these like pods of the future of work, working intently together, collaborating together to solve a challenge and problem and to leverage the learnings of that. How might we overcome the, factor of that being maybe a silo for others to benefit from the advantage of that in organization or in industry or globally. Right, right. Now it's, it's again, a, a key theme in, in my work is the, the notion of while the core unit of learning is, is the small group, um, to scale that learning, you have to find ways to connect those small groups on platforms and in networks. I call them creation spaces, where there is an explicit goal of helping everyone to learn faster. And you can do that in many different ways. I mean, one of the simple ways is just to create a, an online discussion forum where a member from one work group can pose a question, you know, we're wrestling with this problem. Does anybody have any ideas or thoughts on how to uh, address this? And then there are other things that are have to do with real-time feedback loops where you're monitoring the impact that various work groups are having and using that as a vehicle to say, what can we learn from the work groups that are accelerating impact and what can we learn from the groups that are, are falling behind? You know, what, what do we need to do to improve and evolve so we can have even more impact together? Another follow-on question, and I, I think we could probably speak for a long time, but we're coming to... <laughs> to uh, uh, the, the witching hour. And what, what's springing to my mind is the psychology and makeup, almost like our, you know, indoctrination of how we behave. And our school systems, you know, if we collaborate uh, in school, it's called cheating. 
you know, if if we, you know, want to pass the exam and, you know, John knows the answer, I can't go and ask John to fill out question 14 and then yeah. someone else to do number 12. And so we don't actually collaborate well from youth. So then we have this system of competitive advantage of you know, protecting all of our R&D money and then we need to realize it. So we have patents, we have all of these things versus this view of a shared pursuit, a shared pursuit of humanity for the common game. Uh, yeah. Things like X Prize or various bits that are saying, here's a big problem, crowd, work on solving it, get your teams together, do these various things, but they still don't necessarily collaborate with each other because they're still competing. So in a competitive economy and society, how do we truly collaborate in a way that is um, advancing for the common good at the scale and pace we need it now? Because we need something incredibly different to what we had in the 21st century um, to ensure that one of my fears, you talk about fear, you know, fear for me is that there's a risk of people being left behind. And I want to make sure that people have a better future wherever they are um, in their own context and those things to have hope, to ha have those things. And that is going to require scale. It's going to require a lot of technology and a lot of collaboration. And am I right or wrong in thinking that currently we haven't rewarded collaboration very well in our systems design. Um, what's your view on that? Uh, and what can we do about it? Ah, whole other conversation. I think the, um, it we could have to, many, John, I'm sure we could have lots. I know. <laughs> but, you know, again, based on the research that I've done, I believe we're in the early stages of a profound transformation of the economy, mm -hmm. like global economy, I call it the big shift. And one way of representing the big shift is that we're moving from a world of stocks to a world of flows. And what I mean by that is the key to success in the traditional world was knowledge stocks, developing some proprietary knowledge, protecting it, making sure nobody else has access to it, efficiently extracting value and delivering it. The problem is in a rapidly changing world, anything you know is becoming obsolete at an accelerating rate. So if you just focus on knowledge stocks, protecting and diminishing You're asset. running on a treadmill that is twice as fast as you can run. <laughs> exactly. So the opportunity is to really focus on knowledge flows. How can I participate in a broader range of more diverse knowledge flows so that we can all learn faster together? And again, it's driven by an opportunity mindset, which says the opportunities are exponentially expanding. There is opportunity for everyone. It's not just, you know, I'm going to grab it and, and hold on to it. It's a big opportunity that we can all prosper from. And that's the mindset shift that is fundamental, but very challenging because those who've been brought up in the knowledge stock world are, again, resisting any effort at collaboration. But I think the ones that are going to win are those who find ways to collaborate and learn faster together. In that zoom out, zoom in, it's a year's time. We're having another conversation. What's been your most proud moment of that year of a collaboration that you have in the pipeline or you're ambitious to try and set up and do? Uh, paint the picture for me for that, that in a year's time, you're absolutely ecstatic and delighted with a particular 
outcome or collaboration that you've done to give me a vision into what you're working on and what success looks like for you in a year's time? Well, in a year's time, I mean, my vision is, I, I mentioned I'm coming out with this new book. It's my eighth book. Um, I'm hoping it will be out sometime early in the 2021, uh, first couple of months. But the goal is to use the book as a catalyst to create a new kind of center where I'm developing programs that will help people on this journey from fear to hope and excitement, help to cultivate the passion of the explorer, help to drive that uh, commitment to more rapid learning, continuing learning. And um, you know, I, love it. I think that's, that's what excites that, me. I, something stuck in my head from the first time we spoke was this you know, shift from a research center to an activation center. And yes. <laughs> the, the outcome and the impact matters. So for all of us is that, you know, the, the joy is in the action. You know, <laughs> spend time thinking, vision, but don't let that stop you or fear stop you acting. And that's where we discover and we move forward. And I, I think in adaptability, you know, from our research and what we're doing, go and try you know, do these things. And that's where the research comes from, from the activation uh, of those. Absolutely. Books. It's Absolutely. been a real pleasure, John. And I, I look forward to perhaps, you know, number of conversations. It, it compels me more and more to be in the environments whilst I have this great transportation service and system called Zoom. Um, <laughs> the richness of the environment that you have intentionally placed yourself in um, sounds just like a joyful playground for minds like ours. And thank you for giving me the time to gain some insights, uh, to learn along the way. And it's been a, a real pleasure to, to have the conversation. So thank you, John. Well, thank you for the opportunity for a very rich conversation. I appreciate it. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams, and organizations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast directory, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review, and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.